Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this episode of Indie Matters, intern Sean Galanka has a story on several programs that are getting funded through the CARES Act, and he talks to one person who's utilizing free online therapy offered by the city of Reno. After that, we meet freshman assemblywoman Heidi Kasama and freshman assemblyman David Orentlicker in our freshman orientation segment. And as always, healthcare reporter Megan Messerly gives us an update on the coronavirus at the end of the show. There has been more than $1.6 million in federal CARES Act funding that was set aside for tackling mental health issues brought on by the pandemic in the state, and it supported mental health hotlines, crisis response teams, and more. On top of that, some local jurisdictions decided to spend their CARES Act dollars to support their residents' mental health. The city of Reno has partnered with the website Talkspace, an online therapy site that pairs its users with therapists, and is now touted as a model for how government can create city-wide programs using the tool. Intern Sean Galanka takes a closer look at how it's working. I am joined by intern Sean Galanka down in Las Vegas. Sean, how's it going? Going well. How are you, Joey? Doing well. So you recently wrote a story on kind of mental health in the state. And there's kind of a lot going on, especially with the CARES money, CARES Act funding money coming through. So I just want to ask you a little bit about your story, a little bit about what you've looked into. So first, there was $1.6 million of CARES Act funding for mental health mitigation that came into the state. Can you kind of explain to me where that money went and what it's doing? Yeah. So basically, I mean, big overview, the state had 800 plus million in CARES Act funds that they spent on a lot of different things. Uh, they allocated about 1.6 million of that towards this category of mental health mitigation. And, and that was kind of broken down into youth suicide prevention and these mobile outreach safety teams in Southern Nevada and Northern Nevada that kind of act as crisis response units for, for people calling 911. And, and so I know that in some studies and reports put out there, Nevada is put like dead last, 51st in the United States for, for mental health. Why is that? Is this kind of tackling that or is this just more tackling the response to the coronavirus that it's had on mental health in the state? Yeah, I mean, that, that was a thing I, I heard a lot as I was pursuing the story. I, I spoke with Robin Reedy, who's the executive director of NAMI Nevada. That's the National Alliance of Mental Illness. I mean, she kind of harped on the fact that she's she's always talking about how we're 51st, we're 51st. And and that that ranking comes from kind of a combination of things between the the prevalence of mental illness in the state, the poor access to care, and kind of just a lack of workers in, in the mental health field. And so these, these measures introduced through the CARES Act funds were really pandemic-related. Uh, it was kind of an opportunity, at least with the, the youth suicide prevention, to tackle some bigger issues. But for the, the mobile outreach safety teams, the funds were just used in place of the normal Nevada general fund. So can you just break down, you know, the funding, where it's going? I know, like you said, like the youth suicide prevention, where is that money going and how is it helping? Yeah. So as, as the state suicide prevention coordinator, Misty Von Allen, explained to me, a lot of that funding was dedicated specifically to resources for families. So they purchased these firearm security safes and locks as, as well as safes and locks for medications. And there was a few hundred each of each of those safes and locks. And there was about 1700 deterra bags 
which are used for at-home medication disposal. And so that was all through this program called Reduce Access to Lethal Means Program. Alan explained that a lot of times suicide prevention is about preventing the access to those lethal means. And so, you know, providing safes and locks to those families to, to prevent access to firearms, to prevent access to medications, it was an important step. Some of the other funding went towards PR campaigns, kind of just getting the messaging out about youth suicide prevention. And then there were some, some funds that went specifically towards trainings on youth suicide prevention, and those were available to, to families, to faith leaders. Again, it's kind of just getting the messaging out so people can understand the signs of when a, a young person is, is you know, having trouble with their mental health or is considering thoughts of suicide. You know, the New York Times had this story on Clark County about increased mental health problems uh, in the school district. Has there been a, a big increase in, in, in mental health, both in adults and young, young adults and children in the state in 2020 because of the coronavirus pandemic, presumably? Yeah, that was actually, I think, a bit of a, a misnomer. I mean, in 2019, there were 16 youth suicides in the state. That's ranging from just ages zero to 17. In 2020, that number went up to 17. And then going back all the way to 2018, the number was 28. Really, 2020 wasn't an outstanding year in terms of youth suicide. But there, there were still a lot of other signs that, that kind of point to the stressors of the pandemic and, and the importance of funding these programs. And then the, the last thing I wanted to touch on was the a lot of this money also went to this, this Reno Talkspace partnership, which is this online mental health website. Can you kind of explain to me what that partnership is, what they're doing, and is it just offered in Reno, or is it just the whole state, or how's that working? Yeah, so the funds that went to this were actually CARES Act funds that were allocated directly to the city of Reno. The city of Reno, out of the about $47 million that they had in CARES Act funds, put about $3 million of that directly towards mental health services, and a little over $1 million was spent directly on a partnership between Talkspace and the city of Reno. And this was to provide online therapy services to Reno residents, and specifically just Reno residents. You had to have a Reno address in order to sign up for the services. And this was this was kind of the the first of its kind. Not not many cities out there are really taking this sort of sweeping approach to providing mental health services. All right, Sean. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me, and we'll move on to kind of hearing a little bit more from your reporting on this. Following a soft launch for city employees in the police department, the city of Reno rolled out mental health services to its citizens through a partnership with Talkspace, an online therapy provider. Starting in late January, the service launched for Reno residents aged 13 and up. I spoke with someone who used the services to learn more about their experience with Talkspace. Hi, I'm Ethan Clift, and my pronouns are he, him, and they, them. And I'm 38 years old. I'm the CEO of a tech company located in Rio, Nevada. I just very quickly was able to sign up and, and pick a therapist based on a small questionnaire that I filled out. They matched me up with a few people they thought would be good fits. And then I picked one and it's been one of the best therapeutic experiences I've ever had. Like many other people, Ethan was afflicted by the stressors of the pandemic and found himself searching for help. The pandemic has really led to sort of me feeling a little more morose about life and just had a baby in May you know, started this company last January and, and I've just been working from home and very rarely do we see people didn't have a baby shower, didn't see very much family in the last year. So 
for me, I was like, I need some some sort of support. After having some mixed results with his previous therapy experiences, Ethan was skeptical of Talkspace. But with most local therapists holding sessions virtually during the pandemic, he decided to sign up. After filling out a questionnaire focused on his levels of depression and anxiety and satisfaction with life, Ethan was presented with a few different therapists to choose from. But I basically was given some options of therapists that were available. And I went through their bios and I picked one that I thought would be a good fit. But I wasn't sure, right? I mean, they're just bios. It's just not unlike what you do if you're looking for a therapist in real life. But I think what was different is them giving you an assessment that matched you up with them. So it was matchmaking with therapists. Unlike typical therapy services that are often centered around weekly face-to-face discussions between client and therapist, the Talkspace services allow for unlimited text, voice, and video messaging. Alongside the back-and-forth messaging, Ethan also had a short introductory call with his therapist. From that call, he was able to then write up a treatment plan for me. And then he basically texted the treatment plan, messaged it through the app. And the treatment plan was spot on. It's, he took everything that I was saying. was just He basically took me on this epic choose-your-own-adventure journey that I didn't expect to go on. I just expected to like kind of be on the tender of therapy sites, you know, where it's just super superficial and not deep and just, you know. They're just going to text you random, I don't know, mindfulness tips or something. I, I don't know what I imagined, but I didn't imagine it being like this. Ethan said he gets texts from his therapist every weekday that typically include questions, checking in with him and seeing how he's doing. So far, I've just like been really impressed with the model, I guess, because it kind of turns therapy, the typical therapy model upside down. The texting is just so convenient for me and I don't. I, there's so many times over the years where I've had just kind of a mediocre therapist and then I show up at their office by the time you get all the admin and chit chat and then the talk about what time you want to meet next week, you end up with a 35 minute conversation anyways. So, you know, when you're paying a hundred, $125 cash for a 35 minute conversation with your therapist, it just always feels you're kind of getting ripped off. But Ethan knows a few other Reno residents who have not had quite as positive experiences with the service. I, I had posted something like a couple of days ago about Talkspace and like just that I was shocked that it was this this cool and effective really. And uh, and I got a bunch of responses and some people, it was mixed. A few people were like, you know, I got a terrible therapist. One was like, I had a therapist who ghosted me three days in a row and then was off the site. And while Ethan believes that Talkspace has been a great service to use during the pandemic, he said he might feel differently when things return to normal. There's something about being in person with people that I feel does create sort of a sense of intimacy and connection that you don't get, you know, online or via text. So, yeah, so I hope to see after this. But right now, I'm just, this is amazing. I, I really enjoy this, you know, this mode, I guess, of therapy. That was Sean Galanka talking with Ethan Clift. Sean wrote, produced, and edited this story. You can find more about how federal aid is supporting mental health in Nevada through an article Sean wrote on this issue on the NevadaIndependent.com. As we have done for the past few weeks, we are once again going to meet two new freshman legislators in our freshman orientation segment.
The first freshman we are going to meet is Republican Assemblywoman Heidi Kasama, who represents the Summerlin area in the west part of the Las Vegas Valley. She replaced Assemblyman John Hamburg, who was prevented from running again because of term limits. We asked Kasama how she ended up in Las Vegas and what she does for a living outside of politics. My parents immigrated from Norway and they came to New York City, to Brooklyn, like many, many immigrants in those days. So I was actually born in Brooklyn, New York City, and my parents eventually went to Seattle. A lot of Norwegians there, and so I grew up most of my life there. I arrived there before I was seven years old, and I met my um, current husband there, who is Japanese, and we were both CPAs, and that's how we met. And then we had uh, uh, yours, mine, and our family. We have a combined family of five daughters, and then eventually we sold our CPA practice and decided we'd like to move to a sunny place from Seattle. I've been a CPA for 20 some years in, in the Seattle market and we moved to Las Vegas in 2002. So um, it's like 18, 19 years now, it's crazy. When I came down to Las Vegas, I opened my own real estate company, grew that to about 80 agents and then merged with the company Prudential at the time, which is now Berkshire Hathaway. And I'm the managing uh, broker for the Berkshire Hathaway office in Summerlin. I have about 230 agents that work for me. We also own a property management business as well, and we manage about 350 homes. After serving in several leadership roles in the Nevada real estate industry, Kasama wanted to see some changes in Nevada laws, and she felt that the best way was to run for office. She told us how she ended up in the legislature and if she ever saw herself doing this job. It, it was never on my radar <laughs> to become a legislator. So I became the president for the Nevada Realtors, the estate organization, which is about 18,000 members. And um, in that process, I certainly became very much more involved with politics because if business is your profession, then politics is something you better be involved with because it touches all areas of the business that we do and particularly in housing as well. And then after the last couple sessions, I was disappointed with some of the things I saw and you know, you can't complain if you, if you don't step up. And so I stepped up and I ran a primary and in an open seat and won and, and here I sit today. Kasama also told us about her experience growing up as a child of immigrant parents. So we only spoke Norwegian at home. I had parents that were immigrants. And so I was the one that learned English in school and helped my family sometimes with um, just filling out forms for things. And so I understand the life of an immigrant family too. And you know, what are some of the struggles your families go through with that? We didn't have much money at all because they, again, English wasn't their main language. They had no professional skills and so you know how do you navigate through that world and yet I do believe our country is is so much stronger from all these different groups of people that have come here and I certainly am a believer in supporting those that come here legally with hard work and, and dedication I put myself through college I had three jobs put myself through college had a, a student loan I paid it all off I think there's opportunities there, and if you embrace them, and, and I feel my parents, they, they didn't have any money, but they gave me the tools I needed, the hard work ethic, um, being ethical, being honest, treating everybody fairly. We asked her what some of her legislative priorities were coming into the 2021 session. Looking at some of the room tax that is collected, some of it's not an increase in taxes at all, but it is um, making sure that what is collected from the end consumer is remitted to the state. So it's making sure there are no loopholes and that the taxes that are charged to the consumers are brought in. There's something with mobile notaries, you know, now in the COVID world, you know, mobile notaries, we've started with that. There's some, just some tweaks, I think, to make it better that it will work for everybody. 
and that would be important during this time. Some election reform, looking at the uh, voter maintenance records, and there's quite a few bills regarding that. Making sure that w the inactive people are properly removed so that we are not mailing out these ballots to people that are no longer in our state or have passed away. And so um, looking at certainly some a bill regarding economic development, how can we incentivize businesses to come here? And we've, we've done a good job of bringing some new businesses, obviously in Reno, we know the effects here, Reno and Sparks, and you know, of the bringing the new businesses in here, but capturing as much as possible because certainly in Southern Nevada, we see the devastation anytime the hospitality industry is affected. And we've gone through it before, we went through it a decade ago. We're going through it now as well. And so continuing to look to diversify that economy with some economic incentives for businesses to come here. You know, we've lost them to Texas or other states. And so how do we make sure that they come here? The other thing, also the eviction mediation. We, we added um, a layer, a mediation layer, but I don't know if people realize that we already, anybody could contest it and request a hearing. So we already had a process for that. And I've talked to some attorneys and they're like, it's just an extra layer that we don't need because there's, there was already a process in place to hear and to stop the eviction if there was anything that the judge felt was not done properly. So I think it's adding a layer, the courts are already overburdened and we already had a process in place. Kasama also told us a few things that she likes to do with her family when she's not working at the legislature. Love my family and spending time with them, which is, they're, they're so patient with me because I'm always kind of volunteering to do the next position or the thing. And so my family's been incredibly patient with me and I'm grateful for that, that they've allowed me to pursue some of these things. And when I have time, I, I just love dinners with my family and a nice glass of wine and get some golf in once in a while. All right, that was Assemblywoman Heidi Kasama. We are now going to introduce you to Assemblyman David Ortlicker, who represents District 20, which includes portions of Las Vegas and Henderson, including Sunset Park. He replaced Assemblywoman Ellen Spiegel after she stepped down to run an unsuccessful campaign for state senate. Ortlicker is a law professor at UNLV and was a state lawmaker in Indiana, where he used to live. He is also both a doctor and a lawyer, and tells us about choosing those two fields and then getting into government. So when I was in college, I was interested in both fields. I like the sciences. Medicine is such a rewarding career. And I had exposure to law because my dad had been a law professor. So I, and I liked law too. So there, I liked both fields. I found as I was going through that I'm more of a lawyer at heart and you have to do what fits for you, not what is objectively more appealing. For another interview, they asked me to think about why did I choose to run? And I grew up in the DC area. My dad had worked for government for part of his career. And then, as I said, he was also a professor. Lots of my friends, parents worked in government. That's what happens when you grow up in the DC area. You see all these people who are making important contributions. And so I, I grew up seeing government as an important vehicle for taking care of people and making sure Everybody had a, a good education and housing and food, health care, all the other basic needs that people need that we all ha have to have. Government is there to make sure we have them. Orrent Licker was a member of the Indiana legislature for six years, from 2002 until 2008. He also ran for Congress in the 2016 cycle for a seat in Indiana, but narrowly lost in a Democratic primary. He tells us why he chose to come back into politics after moving to Nevada. I don't think one should be a career politician. 
I think it's, you know, so it was good to get back to writing and doing more research and after being out. So it's been 12 years. So, you know, I've done some more thinking and it seemed like a good time to go in and try to implement some of the health policy reforms I've been writing about. Laurent Licker is the director of the health law program at UNLV, and as a former doctor who practiced internal medicine, he wants to bring to the table some reform for funding healthcare. One of the struggles we have as a state government is we have all these responsibilities, but we don't have the ability that the federal government does to raise revenues. They don't have to balance their budget, we do, and so on. So Medicaid is an area where you can do a lot of leveraging of state dollars to bring that bring in a lot of federal dollars and we haven't taken advantage of the opportunities with the Medicaid program so I've been talking with the hospitals and, and the doctors so let's let's be more creative and let's see how we can pull in these federal dollars that are available that other states are bringing in so we can better fund our Medicaid program he also talked about his approach to tax reform in the state and what he would like to see change. When you think about a tax system, you want three important metrics. One, is it a fair system? And, and you know, our, our reliance on sales tax is a very regressive approach. And, and I think it's clear we have too regressive a tax system. So I wouldn't want to do anything to, to exacerbate our tax system. So we need to make it a fair system. And the second thing, if you talk to people who study tax law and policy, you want your taxes to be broad-based as much as possible because part of that's about fairness. But part of that too is about, it never is a good idea to put all your eggs in one or two baskets. So if you're relying on tourism and the tourism industry gets hit, where do you turn? So we really need to do more broadening of our tax base. And, and I think the more we can do that, the better this session. And then simplification. I, I, I was looking at one tax. I forget which one it was now. But I was having trouble figuring out exactly how it worked. And I thought, okay, I'm an MD and a JD. And I'm having trouble figuring out this, how this tax works. How can the average voter understand it? He also talked about his support for more renewable energy as the legislature will be looking at the deadline it set for itself of 50% renewable energy by 2030. So this is critical. I'm, you know, I'm not writing legislation, but I'm very supportive of efforts to move toward more renewable energy. And, and what's so good about this one is this saves us money in a, in a lot of ways, you know, we don't have to raise taxes to do this. We can just encourage, it's already happening and will, is inevitable. The, the move to more renewable sources, the costs are coming down. And so, and we are so blessed with solar sources. So yeah, I think accelerating that transition that's inevitable it's such critical for us, given how much climate change affects us. Ortlicker has some thoughts on election reform as well, especially as it comes to the fact that greater and greater numbers of Nevadans are casting their ballots before election day. It depends on how early you can mail it in. And I'm sensitive to this because I run at a lower profile. If you're running for president, everybody tunes into the presidential election. Or if you're running for governor, 
But at some point, as you get down ballot, voters don't start paying attention to the down ballot races until you start getting closer. And it raises, think about it, it raises the cost of a campaign, right? Let's say you need whatever the number of weeks to reach your voters. Let's say it's five weeks. If everybody votes on November 2nd, then you can start your mail campaign end of September, beginning of October. But if people can start voting a month before election day, now you've got to run your camp, you've got to add another four weeks. So you're raising the cost of campaigns. And and that's, you know, gonna affect, gonna make it harder for people who don't have as much money to run. It's gonna make it harder for people challenging incumbents to run. So so that's what I'm worried about. What are the unintended consequences? When Orntlicker is not working in Carson City, he told us a few things he likes to do in his free time, including a hobby he picked up during a time he lived in Louisiana. I live mostly in the East Coast, and we don't have the amazing national parks. Grand Canyon and Zion and Bryce and Red Rock, you can go to any day. I mean, it's just amazing to be able to go there and hike. I try to find Cajun dancing wherever I go. Or if I can't find it, you can do Cajun dancing to country music. I'll go country to a country dancing place and I'll just do my Cajun. Lastly, Orntlicker shared some words of wisdom that he learned in his past life as a legislator in Indiana. So here's one thing I learned, I felt. If you have a good idea, the question is, how do you get it passed? If it's really a good idea, there's a way. You're never going to get 100%. And if you try to get 100%, you're not going to get anything. And I think that's a mistake some legislators make. They want 100%. You know, that's just not a realistic approach. And, you know, if you can get 80%, that's huge. And the cost of going from zero to 80 is often much less than going from 80 to 100. So, but, you know, you can't compromise your core principles, but you don't have to. 80% gets you your core principle. That wraps up another installment of Freshman Orientation. A special thanks to our guests, Republican Assemblywoman Heidi Kasama and Democratic Assemblyman David Orntlicker. These interviews were originally conducted by Tabitha Mueller and Michelle Rundells, and they were edited by me, Joey Lovato. You can find more Freshman Orientations on our website, and also all of the latest on the 2021 legislative session. And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here. Happy to be here. All right, Megan. So I want to start with the numbers, as we always do. So noting that we're recording at around 9.30 a.m. on Friday, February 18th, uh, what can you tell us about those trends? Yeah, so we're continuing to see, you know, numbers trend in the right direction. So we're at about 290,000 cases um, statewide confirmed since the beginning of the pandemic. Like we've talked about in in previous uh, versions of this podcast, those numbers are still trending down, which is uh, good news. Um, State officials have said they expect those numbers to continue trending down at least till the end of the month. Um, We've been seeing these sort of day over day increases pretty consistently now since um, since December or early January. Um, 
looking at the number of deaths, we're still seeing a high number of deaths, um, you know, being reported back each day, but that trend is going down as well. So we're at about 4,800 um, deaths total so far from COVID-19 since the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, same with hospitalizations. Those are, are trending in the right direction. There's about, there are about 700 people hospitalized with COVID-19 um, as of the last day data was reported, which is for Wednesday. Um, Recoveries, we're at about 270,000 uh, recoveries reported by the counties. Um, on the vaccine front, you know, that's obviously what everyone has been keeping a close eye on. Uh, there have been about 470,000 vaccines administered to Nevadans, that's first and second shots combined. Uh, so, for a sense of what that means for the population, 11.2% uh, of Nevadans have either been fully or partially vaccinated. That means they've either gotten their first shot, gonna get their second shot soon, or they've gotten both shots. So, uh, you know, we're, we're making progress. Obviously, uh, everyone would like to see that effort go faster, but we are seeing those numbers, you know, cre creep up and making somewhat significant increases each week. Hmm. So, you know, we're looking at all these trends and a lot of them have been going way down over the last four weeks. Uh, but I'm curious, when we put this whole thing in context, when we look at the totality of the pandemic in Nevada, uh, where do we stand on the totals? What, what do the actual outcomes look like? Yeah, I, th I think it's a good question. And, and this is something that I've been thinking a lot about and talking to folks a lot about this idea that the fact that the numbers are trending in the right direction doesn't mean that the numbers are good, right? Looking at that number of, you know, 700 people hospitalized with COVID-19, that's a lot less of the above 2000 that we had uh, hospitalized at the peak this winter. Um, but that number, if you look at it compared to other states, Nevada still has the sixth highest number of people hospitalized per capita of any state. We were number one, so obviously we've gone down, but if you still look at where we're at compared to other states, still have a fairly high number of people hospitalized. I think the concern that state officials are are looking at is, okay, we're expecting these numbers to you know, improve hopefully through the end of the month at least, um, but by March 1st, do they start going back up again? Um, and, and what does that mean for us given that we're still at sort of these, these high levels and, and high numbers? Um, obviously there's some hope, I think that the vaccine will, will help with some of that, that we won't see. For instance, if we have another way, we won't see as many deaths, uh, but obviously there's there's a concern that we're, we're gonna reach this lo new low point and then the numbers are, are gonna start going right back up again. Mm, and that's a trend we've seen before. So I'm curious, the governor had an announcement this week with a couple of loosened restrictions and some uh, news on vaccines. Can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so the, the big news was that um, the governor announced that starting next week, uh, retail pharmacies will be administering the vaccine uh, to anyone 65 and older, which is good news for folks in that 65 to 69 age group. Uh, they were previously not able to be vaccinated. Um, some counties on an individual basis had decided to go ahead and vaccinate 65 and up like Elko County, uh, but this was not happening statewide. It wasn't happening in Clark County or Washoe County. I know I personally have been getting a lot of questions and messages about this. When will it be my turn if I'm in that 65 to 69 group? So that was the big news this week. And the, uh, the governor also announced that the goal is to get counties to be vaccinating um, the 65 plus population widely by March 1st. Now, Clark County has actually already made the decision to open up uh, vaccinations to 65 plus. That includes uh, UMC, the Southern Nevada Health District and County run mass vaccination sites. So they actually just went ahead and made that decision already this week to go ahead and open open things up. So it won't just be retail pharmacies. Um, I have not heard uh, Washoe County when, when they'll be doing that. But the good news is that more people will be able to have access to the, the vaccine. And, and I know that that was obviously a big concern for a lot of folks 
Um, a couple other announcements the governor made this week uh, for, for folks um, in high school sports. Uh, contact sports will soon be allowed to resume. There's still some uh, sort of rules and regulations that have to be sorted out, um, figuring out, you know, testing and proper safety protocols and things like that. But that means that, for instance, football uh, will be able to continue where previously um, only other sports like, for instance, baseball, you know, where you don't have that kind of contact um, had been allowed to resume. So that's uh, good news for folks, obviously, who've been eager for news on that front. And then the third piece of news that we found out this week was um, that schools that have already been uh, having in-person instruction, so that means not Clark County, since Clark County is just going to be resuming on March 1st, um, they will be able to actually expand the number of uh, kids in the classroom and, and they can actually expand the number of kids on school buses as well. Uh, not back to full capacity, but that will give them a little bit of wiggle room in bringing uh, more kids back to school. Well, we're going to have to leave it there for now. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as a regularly updated dashboard with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Sean Galanka, Heidi Kasama, David Ortlicker, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. If you like listening to the show, consider leaving a rating and review wherever you listen, or share it on social media. It helps the show grow and reach more people. Tell us how we're doing. Comments, questions, complaints, and even the sought-after praise. Email me at joey at com or jacob at jacob at com. Local Reno band People With Bodies wrote and performed our original theme song. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find them on Spotify and Bandcamp. We had additional music this week from Lance Conrad and some music made just for the pod by Joey. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week. us how we are doing comment oh we were so close we were so close i f***ed it up